Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, which is the final episode of a three-part best of series here on the podcast, I'm sharing my conversation with Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko, the authors of The Good Life Method, Reasoning Through the Big Questions of Happiness, Faith, and Meaning. Here's some brief background on our guest today. Megan Sullivan is the Wilsey Family College Professor in Philosophy at the University of Notre Dame, Director of the God and the Good Life Program, and Director of the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Study. Paul Blaschko is an Assistant Teaching Professor in Philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. He heads up curriculum design for the God and the Good Life Program, and has recently been working to develop similar curricula at universities across the nation. In the conversation, we discuss the good life, the role of faith, making sense of suffering, contemplation, wisdom in daily life, and much more. All right, without any further delay, I hope you enjoy this final episode of our Best Of series, I now bring you the wise and gracious Megan Sullivan and Paul Blasco. Well, Megan and Paul, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, we're excited about this. I'm excited as well. I, I have to say the Good Life Method might be the most practical philosophy book I've ever read. So congratulations. It is a, it's a great read. It's a a huge compliment. That's what we're aiming for. Well, good. You you hit the mark there. And I was hoping maybe we could kick off the conversation talking a bit about the course that you teach, uh, God in the Good Life. You want to kick it off, Paul? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we've taught God in the Good Life for about seven years. And, you know, the way it got started, uh, I was actually TAing for a a course Megan was teaching, uh, just an intro philosophy course. And I don't know, I was, I was a bit of an annoying TA probably because uh, I really care about, you know, teaching and pedagogy. And I would, I would uh, have these conversations with Megan all the time. Look, like, you know, how can we sort of do active learning and engage the students, you know, in, in different ways? I also, you know, part of my background is I learned a lot of philosophy on the Internet. I just like went to YouTube and I would just watch boring lectures or like really exciting, quick explainers, whatever it might be. And so I kind of, you know, from, from my point of view, I just sort of. Uh, had this sense that, and I think, you know, this is certainly something Megan and I shared, had the sense that um, these questions are are more exciting and engaging than maybe the typical Philo 101 format allows for. Um, so Megan uh, was actually on sabbatical for a year. She came back uh, and proposed kind of a, a big revamp of Philo 101. Uh, and the, the style that, you know, we use to describe this now is uh, to revamp it in a, a, the style of a philosophy as a way of life course, right? So to think about the way that philosophy is practical, the, the starting point for us is this quote from Aristotle, who says, look, we're studying virtue, not just so that we can, you know, gain theoretical wisdom, not just so we can know, uh, you know, uh, sort of technical distinctions between different character traits or something like that, but so that we might become better people. So we might sort of become happy. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, uh, and, and, you know, that really struck us because, uh, the typical way that, that you teach a philosophy course, you, you kind of introduce students to a lot of big ideas, big concepts, maybe dates. And then you give them a quiz and you're like, ah, you know, what did Descartes say? When did he live? And we thought like, this is so at odds with the way that we experience philosophy in our everyday life. Megan and I are constantly like sending New York Times articles to each other. And we're saying like, <laughs> like look at these assumptions. These are crazy, right? Like these people, they're burying these philosophical assumptions or, or this is a philosophical conclusion. Like, uh, you know, that, that has some impact on the way that I might want to live my life. So uh, we started teaching then. We, we sort of designed and started teaching God and the Good Life. That's the, the name of the course that we teach here at Notre Dame. Uh, again, about, about seven years ago. Uh, and one thing that's just been fun is, you know, it's just taken off. The students here, uh, who, many of whom actually help us teach the course. We have student peer dialogue leaders uh, who help us teach the course They've just, you know, responded to this uh, just phenomenally well. And I think, you know, it speaks to a real need uh, in our students, but really in our culture more generally to 
sort of sink our teeth into these deep substantive questions and texts. Uh, you know, there's a lot of ancient wisdom out there. There's a lot of contemporary wisdom out there. Uh, and I think people are just really eager to, to sort of ask those, you know, what we call the big questions about faith and meaning and happiness. Um, so I, I'll leave it there. I don't know, Megan, if, if you've got sort of other like details and, and things that you want to add to that. Yeah, I think one thing I'd add, um, Paul totally hit the nail on the head. And of course, we worked on it a lot, but so did a lot of the students that we really care about and some of our colleagues here. It's been a team effort here at Notre Dame. When we started teaching the class, my youngest brother, we've got huge age gaps in our family, and my youngest brother was getting ready to go to college. And he spends a lot of time up here in South Bend with me. Paul knows him, Connor. Um, I think one thing that was heavily on my mind that in fall of 2016, when we did our first really big version of it for freshmen, was also Connor's very first semester of college. And I was thinking about how I hope that college is a time where people help him care for his soul, like help him become a really great adult, like a great man. Um, and that means like he kind of finds his real moral compass. It means I, I give my brother all kinds of solicited and unsolicited life advice. But, you know, mm -hmm. we talk about how, you know, how important is it to find a high paying job? What, what, how do you know if you're having a good relationship? All this advice, loving advice that we give to people that we really care about, especially when they're starting out in the world. And that absolutely informed the kinds of questions that Paul and I baked into the syllabus that we wanted to ask and talk about with our students. Like, you don't have to figure out all by yourself what a good job is or what it is to have a good family or what kinds of sacrifices are really worth it or whether or not you should sometimes tell people you're wrong about an important question. Like, these are all topics that Plato and the utilitarians and the Stoics give us really good advice on instead of just texting this at Connor poor Connor, the freshman at Brown, realizing like we wanted to have this conversation with all the students here at Notre Dame that, that we're responsible for. I love that. And I'm sure there's many reasons for the popularity in this course, but I imagine you get feedback throughout these seven years of teaching it from the students. Is, is there maybe an idea or two that, that makes this more popular, more useful than maybe a traditional philosophy 101 course? Yeah, I think I'll, I can start here. Paul and I last night had just a little dinner uh, for the book launch, and one of our students came with her parents. She's a senior at Notre Dame now, but she took the class when she was a first semester freshman and then was one of our student um, teaching assistants for the semesters after that. So we're talking with her and her parents, and she's getting ready to graduate. And she's like, like, this is the most important class that I took in college. And her parents are nodding like, yeah, we're so glad that this happened early on. And so we're you know, asking why. And we heard something from her that Paul and I both hear from a lot of students and their families. This is a class where um, they realized that they were really cared about, like r r right away. They were they were kind of centered as like the subject matter of philosophy. The reason we do philosophy is because we have hopes for you and for the kind of life that we think you can lead. And I think right now, uh, you know, look, it's been a dark couple of years. It's certainly been a very, very difficult set of uh, set of years for high school and college age students who just keep getting all of their plans thwarted and are living through a lot of disappointment and uh, volatility. And to be able to have something stable like philosophy that gives you a chance to have relationships of mentorship and gives you a chance to think about what you really want to try to find grounding. Uh, I think that that's a, a, a breath of fresh air for, uh, for a lot of young people right now. So that's, that's definitely part of the recipe and something we hear from a lot more than this particular family. I think too, uh, a way of sort of uh, uh, encapsulating uh, what Megan's saying, which I, I totally agree with is um is sort of using this example of, of, of the major assignment in the course. So one thing that we ask our students to do over the course uh, of the semester is to come up with, you know, a philosophical apology, what we call a philosophical apology. And of course, this has a long history, right, in the tradition. Uh, Socrates uh, uh, really famously, uh, you know, is, is depicted as giving an apology uh, in a platonic dialogue. Augustine wrote the Confessions, right, where he's trying to explain not only, you know, what he believes and what his views are, but to really tell the story of his life and to, to use that to illustrate, you know, here's what this looks like when it shows up in my real life. Uh, and here's how it came about. Here's how it actually happened. So so over the course of the semester, we give our students 
four big questions. We just sort of pick these four and we say, okay, we're going to focus on, you know, what do you owe to other people? What do you owe to yourself? What do you aspire to morally? Uh, what do you believe, right? And how do you figure out what to believe? Um, what would make your life meaningful? Uh, and then uh, should you practice a religion? What are the sort of considerations that go into that? And at the end of the semester, the students write all this down, right? So we're asking them not to like, you know, report on all the, the views of the philosophers that we've talked about throughout the semester, but to relate those views to their life in a really personal way. Uh, and, you know, at the beginning when we started, you know, the, the, the course and started teaching this, I didn't know how that was going to go. I thought like, this could be like a total disaster. This could be a train wreck. But it's really one of the things that, that has just stayed sort of solid throughout uh, all the years that we've taught it. Uh, and it's even, you know, it's, it's taken on a life of its own. Like uh, during the pandemic, we learned that uh, one of the, the dorms here on campus, students who were taking the class were actually like helping other students write their apology, students who weren't in the class, like write their apology, uh, which like, you know, when we heard that we were just like, oh, this is, you know, youth have been corrupted uh, in, in sort of the Socratic philosophical sense. And so, uh, so, so that's, yeah, that's just uh, sort of uh, an illustration or example of, you know, um, how, how we really take seriously this idea that philosophy is, is deeply personal and it's deeply practical. I love it. And Megan, you mentioned the listeners can't see, but there's a banner behind you that says corrupt the youth. Maybe you could briefly uh, touch on that idea. Yeah, this is so funny. I got an email from another one of our former students uh, this morning that was about the book and, she, and her just being just generally excited about being a senior. Uh, she had a lot she wanted to share with me, but she signed it off with CTY and then like 17 exclamation points, which is kind of the uh, the official unofficial email signature for all of these students. And it's short for corrupt the youth, which was famously the the charge that the Athenian government, one of the charges the Athenian government pressed against Socrates in 399 BC, uh, they said philosophy needs to stop in Athens, certainly the version of it that he's practicing, because it is corrupting the youth. And uh, and what that means, you know, there's a, it was a huge debate in Athens at the time about whether it was good or bad for young people to learn to ask all of these um, really big existential questions. But Socrates thought it, it was essential. Like it, it's just incredibly important for people to learn how to use questions and to wonder about the truth about uh, whether they're living good lives, what genuine justice is, whether they understand what courage is, like what they're aiming at. And so uh, we teach our students the apology uh, as a kind of like source starting text for learning how to care about the good life the very first week of our class. And of course, they get uh, introduced to this idea of corruption and love it as soon as we start talking about it. And it's become this just meme. So we've got the banner, but we've also got sweatshirts that some students made a couple of years ago and sold um, that are really like weirdly designed, but have Socrates's ugly face on it and corrupt the youth in huge letters. There are stickers. And, and to my constant embarrassment, I'll find the stickers sometimes on things on campus they should not be stuck to. Um, so, so it helps feed this idea that philosophy is like edgy and countercultural in a way that uh, uh, really, I think, appeals to, to younger folks. Nice. I love it. Um, well, traditionally on this podcast, we pick maybe two or three chapters and spend a bit of time uh, getting into those topics on a maybe a deeper level if we can uh, if we have time to. But before we get into that, I was wondering if you could maybe just provide a, a general kind of quick framework of the book for the for the listeners, because um, we're going to jump to primarily part two of the book in the uh, conversation. Yeah. So the way the book is structured uh, in some ways, you know, and I, I didn't even entirely realize this until I like, you know, sort of like have been looking through the table of contents and, and all the different chapter headings. But the way it's structured is actually uh, very similar to the way that Aristotle structures uh, the Nicomachean Ethics or his book on uh, virtue. Right. Uh, which comes from a course that he was teaching on, on happiness in, in ancient Greece. Uh, and the way it's structured is, you know, in, in the beginning of the book, we, we think a lot about. Uh, what it means to be a human person and uh, what sort of purpose or function uh, we might have and how we can use that reflection, right, which is something that, that virtue ethicists have done uh, for thousands of years uh, to identify and think about, you know, the different aspects of the good life. So each of the chapters takes up a different virtue 
uh, by which we mean, you know, some sort of excellence uh, of character or, or, you know, we, we use the language of uh, an excellence of the soul. Uh, and, and each of these is supposed to, you know, also represent a different sphere or aspect of the good life. So, you know, in the beginning, we're thinking about um, truth and, and, you know, what it means to love the truth and what it means to love the truth in community with other people. Right. Uh, we live in obviously like really politically divisive times. It's, it's, it's hard to have like a deep sort of meaningful conversation without, you know, getting angry and like storming out of the, the Thanksgiving dinner or whatever it might be. So we take that question up. And then in the second chapter, um, uh, we look at, or, you know, so in the first half of the book, we look at, uh, questions of generosity. Um, you know, what does it mean to, to live a generous life? How should you organize your financial life? This is something Megan has been thinking about for years and just loves to, to wax philosophical about, um, uh, you know, how should you sort of use your money? How should you use wealth if you're a virtuous person? Um, uh, we talk about loving attention, uh, and how, you know, loving people isn't just a matter of doing things for them. It can be, you know, something that you, you organize your intellectual life around some, some, uh, different ways that you can think harder about how to pay attention and attend to the people around you. So these are examples, right? So each of these uh, is kind of a different virtue, a kind of different area of the good life. And, and, you know, as you kind of alluded to in the first half, we're really asking these kind of deeply practical questions, things that we're all worried about on a day-to-day basis. As we move throughout the book, the questions get a little bit more existential and a little bit uh, sort of more abstract, sort of bigger questions uh, about faith and about meaning uh, about contemplation, you know, whether that has a role in the good life. Um, so that's, that's the structure of the book. And, and again, this is sort of, uh, you know, in, in a way it's parodying what Aristotle was doing, which is, you know, in the Nicomachean ethics, he's asking these questions about human nature, about the ends of human life. Like, what are we aiming at? And then in between, he's just looking at different virtues and, and, you know, making arguments about how we can improve our lives by reflecting on them. Well, great. We'll go ahead and, and jump in the deep end here, if we could, and and start with the the topic of of faith. The the chapter title is "Take a Leap of Faith," and it seems sometimes when we think about the good life, it's not always God and the good life. So maybe Megan, you could start us off as what, why is it important that faith be part of the good life or or something to um to contemplate. So, so one of the things that pushed fi- Paul and I to finally write this book, rather than just teaching many, many versions of our class, which we still do, is we kept getting asked to give just like single serving philosophical advice talks to various groups, like groups of parents or business leaders. Um, and one of the topics that was most requested that people would like hear about from the class, and then they'd really want to hear us talk about was this idea of leaps of faith and try and believing things when you're not quite sure you have enough evidence and what it means to take risks with your beliefs. And uh, so the way we approach this with our students and in the book is guided by this really important philosopher from the late 1800s, an American philosopher named William James. You might probably know him as also the founder of modern psychology. James was really interested in how people make decisions about their religious lives, especially given how contested religion is and how weird it can seem. And James, in the late 1800s, Christianity was very weird. There were versions of it. You can imagine like Catholics are still having mass entirely in Latin and everything looks really like medieval. And then down the street, you've got seances happening in the church, and they think they're literally communicating with your dead relatives. Um, There's all kinds of new versions of Protestantism that are popping up. Like religion was wild and woolly and wonderful. And James is like, how should people make a decision about whether to go in for this right now? And he writes this essay. He writes the essay actually addressed to college students at Brown and Yale. But he's like, you know, you're you're facing these difficult questions about what role religion is going to play in your life. I have some thoughts and I want to share them with you. The essay is called Will to Believe, and it's become just this most incredibly important paper in philosophy of religion. The the big argument, there are a couple interesting arguments in the piece, but the big argument that James has, which is definitely relevant today, is that you might think that religion is weird in that people have to uh, take this leap and believe the claims of a religious tradition without really having certainty that they're true. So, and Paul and I are both Catholics. You go to Catholic mass, you've got to uh, recite the creed. uh, And the creed tells you like some things happened in the desert 2000 years ago and that resurrection from the dead is possible. 
you can imagine a, a somebody saying like, I don't, where's the proof? Like, I just don't have enough evidence of this. Uh, James says, religion is not weird in this respect. There are all kinds of things in our life where we have to make this tricky decision about whether to believe before the evidence comes in. And their philosophy can guide us about whether we're making that decision responsibly or whether or not we're doing it recklessly, the same way we oftentimes have to make this decision about responsibility and recklessness with our actions. Like if Paul invites me to go skydiving with him uh, and I learn a little bit down the road that uh, Paul's friend who's arranging the skydiving trip is uh, is an alcoholic and is really bad at packing the parachutes, <laughs> that, that is like I, I make an assessment about the risk. Um, that can then determine whether or not I think it's a good idea to jump. Uh, James says that when we're deciding what to believe, the first thing we need to realize is that not believing comes with a cost too. So not deciding to uh, investigate a certain kind of way of life, you're going to be deprived of that opportunity if you don't go for it. If I'm so afraid of all of the remote possibilities of skydiving, I might never get the experience, even if there are actually safe versions of it or good versions of it available to me. So first, there's stuff on the line with our beliefs, just like there's stuff on the line with our actions. And second, we have to take responsibility for what we believe the same way we have to take some personal responsibility for the decisions that we make about how to live our lives. And three, sometimes the world is not going to give us everything we need to know for certain that we've made the right call. And so when we give talks and what we talk about in the book is this problem that we face with our relationship with religious belief is really similar to some problems we face in business and in our moral lives and just in general, trying to find a good set of beliefs to help us make our way in the world. And uh, this, they should be treated as a kind and we shouldn't try to treat these, uh, these questions of religious faith as these special, weirdly mystical, insolvable problems. And you provide some great examples from business in this particular chapter as well. But let me read something before I pass it to to Paul. You write in the book, one key question we have to ask before we take a leap of faith is, where's the line? Which is what Megan was talking about as well. But how do we find that line from a practical standpoint in everyday life? Any Any thoughts? Yeah. So, you know, William James actually has a couple of conditions and they're, they're kind of, I mean, they sound almost like old timey, like, you know, uh, early 20th century conditions, you know, uh, but he gives us really practical advice, right? He says, um, you know, one of the conditions is uh, a belief has got to be live for you. If you're going to take a leap of faith responsibly, you can't just say, look, you know, like for, for me, for instance, I can't just say, look, I want to be a Buddhist today. Right. Cause I know nothing about Buddhism. Right. If I studied it, if I took the tradition really seriously, if I surrounded my, myself by people who knew a lot about it, I could maybe find myself in a position eventually where it was a live option for me. Uh, but, you know, just to say, you know, tomorrow, OK, I'm a Buddhist, you know, maybe that's true. Who knows? Now I, I could have a true belief. It's just not going to work that way. Right. Uh, it also has to be, you know, for, for James, it's got to be forced and it's got to be momentous. What does that mean? Well, you know, the momentous one is easy. It's got to be significant. I can't just say, I'm going to believe that there's an even number of stars in the sky. Like, who cares? Like, like what difference <laughs> is that going to make in my life, right? Uh, the first option, I think this is a really crucial condition, right? Uh, so what does it mean for a belief to be forced? Well, one thing it means is that uh, the results or the consequences of not believing, of, of choosing to remain agnostic, are going to be the same as the result of actively disbelieving the thing, right? And so here's where, you know, we can bring religion in as an example. If I refuse to make up my mind about whether or not God exists, right, uh, I might just miss out on the opportunity for eternal happiness, according to many world religions, right? Or to use a down-to-earth example, uh, if I just refuse to believe that, that, that you know, my wife uh, who I'm dating at the time or something, uh, is the one that I should marry, right? If I just keep saying, I don't know if we should commit. I don't know if we should do it. I don't know if we should do it. Well, it's the same thing as saying, you know what? I think we shouldn't get married, right? Uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're sacrificing sort of the opportunity uh, uh, to believe. Uh, one of the examples that we use in the book, and, and here's where I think it gets really interesting and, and really difficult, honestly. We have a lot of debates about uh, this kind of stuff with our students, but one of the examples uh, we use in the book is, is something that's back in the news right now, and that is the, uh, the Theranos case. So Elizabeth Holmes, uh, if you remember, she she started a, a, a tech startup that was supposed to, you know, um, do these micro sort of uh, uh, blood testing um, uh, tests. And, and uh, it was supposed to provide tests for all kinds of different blood 
uh, disorders and, and diseases. And uh, one of the things that she did is sort of as this Silicon Valley entrepreneur, she took after Steve Jobs. She, she would, you know, sort of let her rhetoric and let her sort of promises run ahead of the facts. And, and you know, then you'd come back and you'd say like, well, is this actually going to work out? Well, in some cases it does, right? You know, Steve Jobs famously like predicted, like we're going to have, you know, computers in our hands and our pockets in 10 years. Lo and behold, the iPhone exists, right? Uh, but Holmes, you know, as, as determined by a jury of her peers, uh, uh, crossed the line, right? She, she sort of um, over-promised and literally like defrauded investors and, you know, people who were relying on these blood tests uh, in, in a really serious way. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, a, a good question is like, well, what does that look like in practice? Uh, in, in sort of a, a really cool interaction, I got to meet the uh, author of the, the story that kind of broke the Theranos case originally. And I just literally asked him, I was like, is there a moment when Elizabeth Holmes kind of crossed the line or, you know, is it really vague? Is it a really hard case? And he said, okay, here's the moment. And he described this, uh, this moment where, you know, an engineer and kind of the head of her lab came into her and said, look, we're supposed to start testing hundreds of, of uh, blood tests in a couple of days. We're going to go live and Walgreens is going to send us all these things. He said, we just don't, we can't do it. Like we're not able to do it. Right. He's providing her fantastic evidence. Right. It's not as though at this point, kind of the evidential situation is like, eh, maybe it's going to work, maybe it's not. We've got some time, you know. Let's believe, let's go forward. Uh, and and uh, you know what the author of this article said is, you know, she sort of she was really kind of up in the air for a second. She just turned around and looked at the head of the, the lab and said, no, like it, it works, it's going to work. You know, like that was the moment where you know you took a, a this momentous, you know, maybe at some point it was a live option, uh, and you just sort of you, you cross the line, right? Uh, so. I think, you know, it's really cool how this framework that William James developed, you know, uh, like almost 100 years ago, uh, it shows up. It shows up in Silicon Valley. It shows up in our own lives. It shows up in our personal, like sort of dating and relationship lives all the time, right? We all have to kind of struggle with these questions. One of my favorite parts of the book is at the end of each chapter, these practical exercises. And at the end of this chapter, it's these practice leaps. I was wondering if you could share a bit of insight into maybe the experience for some of your students going through these practice leaps and and maybe how that might help us, uh, the readers. One thing that's been really interesting and tricky about teaching philosophy in the last two years is that we oftentimes think trying something out means like going somewhere. <laughs> um, so students are trying to figure out whether they are going to be a lawyer when they grow up or whether they're going to go be a management consultant. They need to do an internship in Chicago with a law firm and an internship in New York with a consultant. They need to like go and physically move and be part of a program that's going to help them discern the outcome. One thing that we do with our students and the practice leaps versions of the assignments that we give them is sometimes we say, all right, you've you've been curious about um, about you know a a version of Christianity that's not on campus, um, or you've been curious about what it would be like to be a volunteer for hospice. That was one thing that some students did a while back. Um, get on the bus, go there, meet with somebody, talk to them, and show me like your bus pass and a quick report that you gave it a shot. And I'm going to give you credit for this assignment. But the thing I mostly want you to do is take an option that seems like tentative and live in your head right now and physically make it like a, a thing that you try out as a practice and try to embody it. And that's that's definitely one way to take these leaps and certainly very similar with what William, how William James thinks you should investigate these questions. Don't just be like casually curious. If you think something might be like a way of life for you, uh, think about it. If it, you know, we don't encourage students to take leaps of faith into ways of life we think are obviously bad, <laughs> but uh, if you think it, this should be a live option for you, go start to do some initial investigation. Now, in the last two years, with so many things being shut down or and social, the era of social distancing, it's quite hard for 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 students, especially young people, to have that kind of in person encounter. So, one thing that we encourage a lot of students to do, and I've certainly been trying myself. Is to uh, is to to do that investigation in a, a more interpersonal way, even if it's not in a physical way. So I'll give you an example. I think a lot of a lot of young people I know, maybe a lot of adults I know, will get curious about something. You'll get curious about like Mormonism, and the way you'll satisfy your curiosity is just watching every YouTube video you possibly could about Mormonism, <laughs> and doing it in this really passive way that where you can be really anonymous and just be kind of a voyeur. 
And one of the things that we encourage students to do, and I certainly try out in my own life, is not good enough. If you want to try to take on a practice leap, you need to find somebody who's in that life and you need to talk with them and ask them questions and it needs to be interpersonal and it need you need to start getting the kind of information that's not just about that as a theory, but helps you imagine what it would be like for you to be in that story. So starting getting, if, if I want to talk to Paul about Mormonism, um, asking him a little bit about how he would imagine somebody like me becoming a Mormon and start to like chart out that personal version of the path. And that's what William James is talking about with um, with leaps of faith. They're not something that you do in an abstract, apersonal way. The An option becomes what he says live for you by you imagining your life with all of its weirdness and particularity going into that tradition or system. Mm-hmm. Let me ask one follow-up uh, before I come to you, Paul, for anything else, if you have to add. Do you find with your students that the skill of maybe tackling these big questions, as you mentioned in the beginning, these four questions, but maybe just developing this skill of of tackling a big question can travel to many different questions. It's about learning how to to dance with these big questions, maybe. How does that connect? Um, yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely right. So, um, one of the things that we do in our class toward, you know, the, the beginning of the class, we talk a lot about the importance of, of dialogue and the importance of um, becoming disposed uh, to ask questions uh, in the right sort of way and to ask the right sorts of questions. Um, so, you know, we, we distinguish with our students uh, between, you know, at least two different kinds of questions. Uh, one is, is, you know, what we call like the prosecutorial question or the prosecutor question. And I like I'm guilty of this all the time on social media, everywhere else. Right. You're asking a question because, you know, you want to be right. You want to uh, uh, sort of just show like I know the truth about this thing. Right. Like I'm, I'm right. Or you want to feel something. Right. You want to feel kind of like uh, I've, I've dominated this this interaction like I'm, you know, the best or I don't know. You know, there's a lot of sort of uh, bad motives that, that can motivate you to do that. On the other hand, though, there are uh, questions that we call dinner party questions, questions that, you know, you might meet somebody and you're genuinely curious about them. Right. Uh, and they can be about you know, these questions can be about some of the same sorts of, of topics. Right. Um, I've got uh, one of the students that I've worked with here uh, and we just go back and forth all the time about this stuff. He's an atheist and he's a vegan. Right. Uh, and, you know, I could go up to him and say, like, man, like, you know, why, why do you sort of like judge me for eating meat and, you know, get him on the record and kind of like use that to like, you know, like form some sort of argument. Or I could just say, like, you know, when is it that you first started thinking that maybe, you know, animals had sentience or had this, this sort of morally significant property? Like, how did that happen? Like, you know, what was your experience? Uh, and one cool thing is, you know, when you approach these sort of these topics from a place of curiosity, and from a personal place, from a, a place where, you know, I actually want to know more about the person that I'm engaging with, uh, you find that a lot of the walls that we tend to put up, especially when we're like logging into Twitter or whatever, they just come down and, and you're surprised, right? Um, I do this all the time with my mom. My mom and I argue constantly. Uh, you know, I was like raised, you know, she, she was raised in an Irish Catholic home where they're just constantly like pounding on the table and arguing, uh, but it's because we love each other, right? Uh, And so that's how she raised me. And and we're always going back and forth about this stuff. And I find, you know, there are there are certain virtues, there are certain ways of, uh, you know, loving and and valuing uh, the truth and and, and sort of seeing ourselves on the same team that can just disarm and and diffuse these really sometimes politically charged or difficult conversations. Uh, And so absolutely. one, One of our goals in the class is, you know, to give students the tools to ask those kinds of questions uh, about you know any range of topics, anything that falls within the scope of the good life, uh, we've got four questions for them. Uh, but you know we want them to go out and and, and ask a hundred more. Um, so absolutely, that's that's part of our goal in, in teaching the course and and uh, in, in the book. Well, I, I love it. And speaking of of big questions, one of the chapters struggle with suffering. Um, definitely, it, it seems like to me requires some big tools to to tackle. And, um, I, I love this chapter. I think this chapter alone is, is worth the price price of the book. Um, if I could, you, throughout the book, you include some of your apologies in it. And I would love to read a, a brief passage from, uh, your apology. If I could, from this chapter, Paul, and uh, get your thoughts. Is that okay? Absolutely. 
Uh, you write, all things pass away, and in this life we can try to obscure the facts of pain and suffering and evil, or we can arrange our lives in response to this fact. Why, why is this Im- important and, and something with, that we need to think about? Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the passage that that is, is a part of uh, is actually a, a story about uh, my oldest child being born. And so if I can just recount that really quickly for you. Absolutely. Uh, when I, yeah, when my, when my son Solomon was born, um, it was our first kid, you know, first time parents. We knew nothing. We just like, you know, went in just thinking like, oh, birth of our child this is going to be very exciting. And it was. Uh, but, but when he was born, he had a, a cyst under his tongue and we didn't know what it was. Uh, and he was pushing his tongue up into his mouth so that he couldn't actually breathe. And, and, you know, the medical professionals that were around us at the time, they were really, you know, afraid that we might lose him like in the delivery room. Uh, thankfully that didn't happen. Uh, he, he, you know, survived the delivery. Uh, but at that point they came to us and they said, we have no idea what this is. We're going to have to send you to a children's hospital. Uh, and you know, it could be weeks, it could be months before we kind of figure out how to deal with this and what it is. So my wife and I, you know, spent uh, some time really coming up against uh, and, and considering what up until then had been a very theoretical and abstract problem for me. Uh, in philosophy, we talk about the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. Uh, and the way that we think about it, you know, uh, especially you know, as, as philosophers who take seriously the idea that God exists or might, might exist, uh, is, you know, as, as a problem uh of, of agency, of, of God sort of looking at the world, knowing that there's suffering, knowing that there's evil, being able to resolve it, being able to do something about it. And yet he allows it for some reason, right? And for me, you know, I had considered every kind of argument and come to the conclusion, intellectually, look, I think there are good arguments, you know, uh, that show that this isn't, at least this isn't reason to sort of become an atheist or think God couldn't exist or couldn't possibly exist. But it's really different to encounter that and to think about those arguments philosophically and theoretically uh, and then, you know, when you actually sort of come up against one of these experiences in your everyday life. Um, so, you know, my experience was, you know, we went down to, to Riley Children's Hospital in Indianapolis. Uh, we were working with the doctors there. We still didn't know what was going on. Uh, and at one point, I just like I, I told my wife, I was like, I need a break. I'm going to go for a walk. Uh, I was walking down. I, I came into a, a, a big, huge mall and it was like around like the holiday season vaguely. So it was just like packed and there was just festivity everywhere. And I was just like in this, you know, crazy state of mind. So I was like, you know what? I'll listen to the Bible. That's what I'll do. Uh, and so, so I just picked randomly, I picked a chapter of it on this free audiobook that was oddly narrated by James Earl Jones. It was all just like the most bizarre stuff. So I picked Ecclesiastes, right? And what I was expecting, again, I, embarrassingly, I didn't know anything about Ecclesiastes at this moment. I thought like, oh, this will, this will provide comfort, right? This will be sort of God speaking to me and answering my, you know, sort of cries for suffering. But, you know, of course, Ecclesiastes is, is not, a comforting book of the Bible. It's sort of, you know, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Like there's nothing but toil under the sun. And I had just this, this experience, this moment, and I call it my Job moment, right? Where my conception of God, right? Uh, which had been thoroughly formed by the philosophical tradition that I'm a part of, you know, knowing that, that God is all powerful, all knowing, all good, and the Catholic tradition that I'm a part of. Uh, it was just totally, it was turned on its head, right? And suddenly I, I realized uh, you know, how mysterious uh, God is and how that, you know, impacts the way that you think about the suffering here in this world and about, um, uh, you know, the significance of that. You know, I came back to the hospital room after that walk, uh, really more than anything, grateful in this weird way, not consoled, not comforted, but grateful that I had even met my son for, you know, like any amount of time at all that I just would could be with him. And at that point, the future was still very uncertain. We didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, and yet there was this, this way in which, um, you know, just reflecting on it and, and sort of using these tr- uh, tools and, and these traditions that I was a part of, uh, you know, allowed me just to be present to uh, uh, my son, to be present to that, you know, in that relationship, um, not sort of in a way that avoided the suffering, but in a way that just like allowed the suffering also to be there. Um, so it's, it's one, you know, certainly one of the more kind of personal experiences that, that I share in the book. Um, uh, and certainly one of the ones that, you know, I'm still sort of thinking about and unpacking both philosophically and personally. Um, but that's, that's what I was sort of getting at in that section. Well, I appreciate you sharing and, and talking about it today. I, I thought it was a powerful part of the book. 
Uh, to stay on this topic, Megan, I'm I'm curious. And in this chapter, you you talk about Kierkegaard, fear and trembling. Um, recently, I've been listening to Word on Fire, and they've done a number of episodes on on Genesis. And and you talk about the Bible. I'm far from any expert on on the Bible, but there are some difficult things to to grapple with. At least for speaking for myself. How how do you and maybe your students on this topic of, of suffering any helpful I- advice to to navigate the topic? Uh, sure, I'll offer offer a, a couple uh, points. First, I was talking to somebody. I was talking to the valet at the hotel on campus today. Who this is a real thing that happened to me. I don't know if we want this on the podcast, but. Um, uh, he's, he's a huge fan of God and the good life. The course he like follows along at home. He's the head valet at the hotel Nice. and really wanted office hours. And I told him I wasn't teaching this semester, but he's like, can I have an office hour anyway to just come talk about philosophy with you? I was like, sure. That sounds pretty awesome. So he, he actually did come up this morning and the thing he wanted to talk about was the problem of suffering. And, uh, he, he's, a kind of religious Protestant, um, and he thinks about the topic a lot. And he just wa- he wanted to know, like, what can I read to make me feel like I finally understand this? And we were laughing because we were chatting about it. And one one thing I said to him was, philosophy is not going to make your suffering go away. And any like quick little thing you could put on a post-it note and like stick on your computer that you think will just answer your questions about why bad things happen to us and in good lives from, uh, with a loving God it's not going to be adequate. Like this is one of those very big, hairy, complicated problems that every human being has to wrestle with and kind of earn their answer to using, using the resources of tradition, but not one that there's like a book that's going to be one and done. And any philosopher that tries to tell you they kind of resolved it, I would, I, you're getting sold snake oil. <laughs> um, so first, like this is meant to be a really hard puzzle. And that's what, what's great about Kierkegaard is he's like never satisfied with the answer. He keeps trying to come up with uh, a way of understanding God that would make sense of how God thinks it's a good idea for Abraham to take his son, who he loves, and bring him up a mountain and make him a sacrifice. Like, and like, why? Why is this part of the tradition? Why is this an example of faith? Child abuse is an example of faith. What? Um, and and the simple answer is like. You know, so much the worse for the Bible. Like, let's, edit, you know, you could do like Thomas Jefferson did, famously did with the Bible and just edit out all the stuff that you find distasteful. Kierkegaard's not going to do that. He says, you can't do that and say that you still care about this question. But you also can't accept like a really simple answer, like, oh, God has a plan. So I'm sure, like, in that particular case, that was the right thing. That's not satisfying for reason seeking, loving, moral creatures like us. I love how angry Kierkegaard gets about it and confused and like, weirded out. He's like, we, we have to live with this. How do we live with this? This is absurd, but not absurd in a way that we can dismiss instead absurd in a way that we just have to like keep fighting out. Um, so one thing that I think it's really important, at least if, if you are somebody for whom Christian faith or a religious tradition, another religious tradition is really important to be able to show in practice how you are dealing with those problems, even in an incomplete way. Some of it's like Paul's story, for me, I share with students about uh, one thing that was really helpful for me in trying to think philosophically about the Bible is I started buying translations of like Genesis, um, the wisdom literature by uh, by academics that were printed like paperback books and not on the really special thin gossamer paper that a lot of Bibles are printed on. And when I started reading, I remember reading Robert Alter's translation of Genesis a couple of years ago. And when I read it like a book and let myself dog ear pages of it and write questions in the margins the same way I would with a philosophy book I really loved, then the stories and details started to really get lodged in my head and started to become like premises and arguments for me. And and you can use texts like this, like scriptural texts as worship aids, and you do in church, but there's another way to consume them using philosophy that can be actually really important as well for your spiritual development if you're doing it in a healthy way. And like, you know, I'll read, read the passages about Abraham and Isaac and note a bunch of the details and see what Robert Alter says and then see what I would say and whether I think this is the right interpretation. And I'm allowed to have an interpretation. Helping our students realize that like, this is a way you can do it. And, and you don't have to be just completely deferential to, um, 
to others, you're, you're allowed to be an active part in trying to figure out what what you uh, need from this to understand a big, complicated question like your relationship with God. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. I think that's really helpful. Um, and maybe a good spot to transition to the to the final chapter to touch on, not the final in the book, but towards the end of the book, and it's on uh, contemplating your purpose. And I, I have a, a really curiosity question for you. There's there's obviously no shortage of, of advice on on the wisdom of of contemplation. Um, the the Aristotle quote of it being the highest form of of activity. But I'm curious how you define contemplation. In this chapter, you've got Marcus Aurelius. You think of you know the the art of, of journaling. Um, maybe in in terms of the East, you might have a, a Buddhist style of meditation or prayer. Are all of these things kind of under an umbrella of of contemplation? How do you think about it and and define it? Maybe you could kick it off for us, Paul. Yeah, so this is actually one of the big goals that I have in this class I'm teaching with my students right now, just trying to understand what philosophers mean by contemplation. Uh, and it's it's incredibly difficult. I spend eight weeks of my class trying to build up just to, to reading one paragraph of Aristotle at the very end of the Nicomachean Ethics. Because I think in our time, you know, we tend to think of contemplation, uh, you know, in, in uh, ways that can be valuable and important, but really aren't you know, the way that, that the ancients often would think about contemplation. So as an example, you know, I've got Headspace, right? Every now and then we'll download Headspace or I'll download Calm or whatever. And I'll do these mindfulness exercises uh, and I find them very helpful. And, and I love I love doing that. Uh, but the way that this is sometimes marketed and the way that I use it for sure is as sort of a relaxation aid, right? Or even as a way of, of being better at uh, all of the active things I have to do in my life, right? Uh, I don't want to be stressed out. I don't want to be anxious. I want to be able to send more emails or like write more words in a day. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to do a 10 minute thing. All right, now back to work, right? <laughs> okay, so Aristotle would like be rolling in his grave if he knew that this is what was happening, right? Uh, he thinks, he thinks contemplation, it draws on, you know, what he says is the highest thing in us, right? And he's talking in, in, in almost mystical terms by this point uh, in the Nicomachean Ethics. He's saying, look, you know, our soul, the best thing in our soul is our reflective, contemplative human nature. Uh, and so contemplation is just the, the highest possible activity. What could he even mean by this? I think uh, one way philosophers have understood it historically, and, and you know, I think it's a, a helpful distinction for us is, you know, there, there are different ways that we can organize our lives. We can organize them in terms of, of actions that we're going to perform, goals we're going to set for ourselves, things we're going to achieve, right? And if you think about contemplation in a life like that or in that framework, it takes on this kind of relaxation aid, sort of productivity hack kind of feeling to it. Or we can arrange our lives uh, in a way where, you know, we're trying to be open to and sensitive to uh, the truth. We're trying to sort of commune with reality, now, whenever I'm trying to describe this to my students, like I'm like, just, just wait a second, all right? I know this sounds weird, right? Uh, and it does sound weird. And and uh, you know, philosophers that that I take really seriously that that try to motivate this, they also know it sounds weird. We tend to think of you know monks and uh, you know people who who sort of uh, become hermits and and sort of separate themselves from the world. We tend to think of them as it's kind of a little off, like kind of a little bit weird, right? Uh, but there's this kind of contemplation. And I guess, yeah, I, I think Marcus Aurelius is, is a, a great example of, um, you know, how, how we can think about this in a really serious way. This is kind of contemplation where you use your intellect, you use your mind to refocus and reorient yourself on what really matters, right? To put yourself in touch with reality. So when Marcus Aurelius is, you know, he's Roman emperor, is uh, like on the front fighting a plague, trying to lead Rome through all of these difficulties. He's got a busy life. He's doing stuff all the time. And yet he doesn't use contemplation as a way of, you know, just like kind of chilling out for a second so he can go out to battle and be more effective. He uses it to return sort of internally to retreat to what he thinks actually makes life worth living, what makes life valuable. And for him, those are those are things like, you know, just the pursuit of virtue, truth, things that, you know, life the world cannot take away from you. You know, this is one of the beautiful sort of insights, insights of stoicism. Uh, the things that really matter, my love for my children, 
uh, you know, the fact that that I want to pursue the truth, that, that I have this virtue or that I'm aspiring to a certain virtue. Those are things that are, that are internal. They're part of my inner life, right? And I can have access to those things even if everything else in the world goes wrong, even if I don't achieve any of my goals, right? Uh, and I think that sense of contemplation, which again, you know, we, we get in, in sort of refracted in different ways from the Stoics, from Augustine, maybe from Aquinas, even from some 20th century philosophers. Uh, that's an ideal that if you can sort of hold it in mind, for me, at least, it's just utterly inspiring. And it, it really changes the way that I think about kind of structuring and ord- uh, 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 ordering my, my everyday life. But again, it's, it's one that it's really hard to just even articulate in our culture, right? Because for, for good reasons and, and otherwise, like, you've got such a hustle mentality and like, a, you know, I've got to achieve, produce, whatever, harder, faster, better, stronger. Uh, and so it, it's just, it's, it's something that, you know, it's really, I think it's difficult to articulate. But once you do, you can see why it's such an attractive ideal. Mm. How about you, Megan? Anything to add there? Um, yeah, I think Paul and I were working really hard on this uh, chapter about contemplation when the pandemic started in March 2020. Mm. And oh my gosh, like how how grateful was I for having a little bit of exposure and training to philosophy when everything else was getting canceled, an upside of philosophy is that it gives you some uh, strategies and material for working on your like thinking life when you literally don't have anything else to do. Um, <laughs> it can be simple things like when you're just waiting on a delayed train, but also big things like when you're waiting on a two-year postponed vacation. Um, so one thing that I think we really want to show and we really believe writing that chapter when we were is that you don't have to be Henry David Thoreau or a monk or uh, or any of that to, to realize that working on this and preparing yourself to be able to contemplate is going to give yourself a chance to have access to good things in life, even when the life of action kind of is letting us down. I guess the second thing I'd say is you got to remember contemplation is not a performance enhancer for any of these virtue ethicists. But at the same time, uh, you you shouldn't it's a it's a complicated question in the history of philosophy whether you should replace your life of action with contemplation and some people have tried to do that have led miserable lives henry david thoreau was a jerk he didn't have close friends he had really messed up family relations that's a legitimate criticism of how he tried to pursue that good um and you can't think that i think there's a temptation for uh privileged folks who have the chance at like spending a lot of time in a great educational institution like Notre Dame or have time to think or have the kinds of jobs where when a pandemic happens, you just get to stay at home and Zoom uh, to, to, to understate how important it striving for goals and, you know, hustling this idea of working really hard rationally to achieve goals that you think are really valuable, but are going to require a lot of work and sacrifice and coordination with other people that's also highly valuable. And the, the contemplative life, the, the real puzzle that we're always trying to figure out um, how to marry the two is that, that they're quite different and that they're both very valuable um, and can't be denigrated. And uh, they're very, very different modes that we might work in. And so, so the real challenge is, is that's our actual work-life balance problem. It's not how much time to spend at home and how much time to spend in the office. It's how much time to spend on this uh, kind of perception of reality and how much time to spend on changing it. Well, I love it. This has been great. I absolutely love the book and our, our time has flown by. It looks like we've made it to a, a wrap up question that we, we ask all the guests that come on and it's uh it's around wisdom, whether how you define it, how you think about it from a, a very practical kind of uh rubber meets the road in, in daily life. Would you like to start us off, Megan? Sure. I, on the, on the wisdom question, I think the, especially the last couple of years with just all of the uncertainty, like it's easy to feel like you're under control when, when everything's really predictable and you know, what's going to happen next. And you feel like you've got all this power because you can see the future. Like I know for sure, if I buy that plane ticket for February, I'm going to take that flight. And I know that like this project is going to start here and end here. It's uh, you can have this feeling of extraordinary power when you always see your targets and you you know how you're going to hit them. 
And then things get really weird, like they have in the last couple of years, where you're just facing all of these problems that you've never seen before, and you're not even 100% sure what you should be aiming at, and certainly not sure how to get it, or whether or not it's even within your power to get it. I think wisdom is this hard-won experience and reflection that uh, works for you when the lights go out. Uh, so, you know, somebody has genuine wisdom if they've had enough other experiences of complicated situations and know all the right kinds of analogies that they can draw from. When they have to make really hard decisions and there's no simple guide to fall back on, they've got this kind of resource, these resources that they've developed in their character and in their previous experiences and in their reflective life where they can they can find the target in the dark. Um, and that's something you don't you don't get it easily. Uh, it's something that you have to constantly work on. You definitely should never take it for granted. In fact, you probably don't have it if you find that you're just kind of effortlessly uh, solving all your problems. Great. How about you, Paul? Yeah, so uh, Aristotle's got a, a particular way of thinking about wisdom that I find really attractive. And, and you know, it helps me sort of pursue wisdom, I guess, in my own life. Um, so Aristotle's got this, you know, deep insight, which is that if you've got all of these different virtues, but you lack this ability to bring them all together, you're actually probably more dangerous than if you don't have the virtues, right? If you're a very vicious person, you can't really do all that much sort of in the world, right? And, and so you're not as dangerous because you can't even formulate plans and go out and act. But if you have like just a couple of the virtues, but not the wisdom to know how to be, bring those to bear in everyday life, you're actually incredibly dangerous, right? This, this is a really bad thing. So Aristotle thinks there is this sort of meta virtue, this overarching virtue, and that is practical wisdom, the ability to know in a particular situation, you know, what action is called for, like whether it's a, a situation where you should be courageous or whether it's a situation where you should be a little bit more risk averse. And one of the things that I, I find really profound and, and uh, yeah, almost yeah, somewhat frustrating, I, I constantly find myself frustrated when reading Aristotle, but you know, he says, okay, so you, he's got all these arguments for all these different virtues. And so you think, okay, how do I get practical wisdom? Like, what is that? What does that look like? What do I have to do? And he says, you know, one of the best ways to do it is just to look at people who already have it and then ask them questions and try to emulate their lives, right? Because it's the sort of thing that, that is hard won. Like Megan was saying, it's the sort of thing that, that comes with experience and it comes with reflection. And it comes by making mistakes, but having people around you who have made those mistakes, who can look at you and say, like, you know, I think this is the thing that you did wrong here. Uh, it's almost like, you know, like training for a marathon or something like try running this way or I don't know, I've never trained for a marathon. Uh, but the way that, that, you know, that that informs my everyday life is, you know, I, I find exemplars. I find people in my life that I think like, man, like I want my life to look like that. And I just interrogate them. Like, I'm sure I, I annoy the heck out of them because, you know, I, I ask my dad every time I meet with him, I'm like, dad, you're retiring. Like, how do you think about your career? Dad, like you're old. Like, how do you think about death? Are you afraid of dying? And, and sometimes you know, he's always a good sport, but sometimes he's just like, look, man, like this is you know a little too deep. Let's just kind of like, like relax for a bit. Uh, but this is, this is what I do is I just find, you know, as many people in my life as, as I can, who are willing to sit down and, and, you know, allow me to ask these kind of pesky questions. And I, I just sort of, you know, put it, put that all out uh, on the table. I guess the, the last thing, and I think this is really funny, so I'll say, but one of the things that's really funny about Aristotle's class on happiness and, you know, the thing that became the Nicomachean ethics, his book about virtue is he says, right at the beginning, he says, look, if you're like 20 or 25, like you're not even allowed to take my class yet. Like you haven't had enough experience in life to take my class. And so one thing that, you know, that, that I take from that, obviously I, I don't believe it. I study philosophy and I teach it to 20 year olds, you know, but one thing I take from that is, is this really real insight that, um, you know, I can know theoretically what I think my commitments are, you know, what I think family life is going to be like, and, you know, so how I should structure my life and plan it. Uh, but there are people who have kind of gone before me and who know a lot sort of firsthand from that experience. And even if I don't speak the same philosophical language as them or, you know, we don't agree theoretically on some things, uh, just listening, just really actively listening and asking these kinds of questions that, you know, form such a big part of, of, of our commitment, in our class, uh, that can be revelatory. It can sort of, you know, it can illuminate uh, you know, some of the hardest and, and most intractable decisions that I come up against practically uh, in my life. So uh, I just, you know, wisdom, I just, I just try to find people who have it and to just ask questions until they tell me to leave.
<laughs> well, that is a great way to to wrap it up. Where would you point people interested in in learning more about you and in your work? Yeah, so we've got a couple of spots. Obviously, the book is is a great place to go. Uh, the Good Life Method. Uh, 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 we try to lay all this out in a, a really systematic way. Um, I'd, I'd direct people to the the website of the course that we teach uh, here at Notre Dame. Uh, it's godandgoodlife.nd.edu. But if you just Google God and the Good Life, you'll you'll come across it uh, fairly easily. If it's okay, I'll plug my TikTok, which is embarrassing, but oh, uh, I do a lot of virtue ethics on TikTok, uh, and I have a lot of fun with that. I just I love engaging, uh, you know, uh, philosophically on the internet. Um, so those are those are some places, uh, and I know Megan's got a couple too. Yeah, if you want to uh, read more about our book or some uh, uh, my previous book or other philosophy that I write, my academic page, megansullivan.org, has a bunch of links to different kinds of writing, including some public-facing writing on some of these questions. Um, and then, yeah, uh, if you look at YouTube, there's a web page we've got for our class and for some of the grants that we've run called PhiLife or the PhiLife group. And you can watch a lot of funny produced by philosophy professors, little <laughs> videos about various aspects of the, the philosophy that we and our students really love. Just keep in mind, remember that we're philosophy professors and we're not like Steven Spielberg. None of our <laughs> actors are paid. None of our, some of our actors are not even sure that they're actors. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. We'll link all of that in the show notes. So I highly encourage everybody to, uh, to check it out. So Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so... I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. If you're interested in more podcasts, meditations, and courses on the art of living, consider checking out our daily newsletter, Perennial Meditations on Substack. Until next time, be wise and be well. <laughs>